this morning we're going to start a new series that I'm, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm really excited about. You have picked a great day to be in God's house. We're starting this new series called All In. All In. I'm convinced of this, that God has a message for you this morning, that God has a, a message for his church this morning. And it's the, it's the message of being all in. There's a, there's a story that is in three of the four Gospels. And, and this morning I want to look at it uh, from Mark chapter 10. And in Mark chapter 10 it tells us this. It tells us that a young man, a young ruler, approaches Jesus. And he asks the question, good teacher, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. What, what must I do to have my eternal destiny set? Jesus responds to the young man. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not fraud your honor, your, 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 your honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, Rabbi, he says, I have kept all these things since I was a boy. And it says this, it says, then Jesus loved him, or some translations say this, then Jesus had compassion on him. And he said, there's, there's one thing you lack. Let me, let me offer you to this this morning. I, I, I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced that the story of the rich young ruler is a prophetic statement for the world today. That it's a prophetic statement for the church today. Oh, it's a, it's a historical account. This, this interaction between Jesus and this young man happened. This is, this is more than a mere parable. But the message of the rich young ruler is God's message to us today. God has compassion on him, and he says, this one thing you lack. What do we know about this young man? Here's what we know about him. We know that he was highly successful. We know that he was a man of tremendous humility. When he comes to Jesus, he bows. And we also understand this, that he had a strict connection and a strict obedience to a moral code, right? When he's asking about the commandments, he says, I've kept all these things since I was a boy. And yet Jesus says this, there's one thing you lack. I believe this. I believe that's a message that God has for the church today. Because for far too long, the Christian community in America, we have had this allegiance, this zealous connection to a moral code. And yet, something, something significant has been lacking. And it's this issue of being all in. Now, the, the rich young ruler should have known better because here's what we know. We know this. We know that he was well taught. We know that he was well learned. And had the rich young ruler taken the counsel of the rich old ruler, his life would have been very different. You see, the rich young ruler, being a, a well-learned man, he would have studied 
the life of Solomon. He would have appreciated the teachings of Solomon. Why? Because Solomon is one of the great kings in Israelite history. See, for him, the name of Solomon would ring to us just like names like Abraham Lincoln ring to us. Just like names of Benjamin Franklin ring to us. Solomon was one of the forefathers of this great nation, the nation of Israel. A, 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 a people that are profoundly connected to their heritage. So he would have known the story of Solomon. He would, he would have known the journey of Solomon. He would have known the writings of Solomon intimately. He likely could quote the beginning of Solomon's book of Ecclesiastes when Solomon says this, vanity of vanity, all is vanity, or meaningless. It's all meaningless. And, and let, me, let me offer you this this morning. The, the book of Ecclesiastes, it's, it's not a book that you'll often hear messages preached out of. And, and I believe this. I believe that it's a misunderstood book. And part of the reason that Ecclesiastes is a misunderstood book is because oftentimes it's read in part and not in the whole. But when you read Ecclesiastes as a whole, and you understand how Solomon begins the book and how Solomon ends the book, it has a significant message. Not just for those in Solomon's day, but for us today as well. Because what does Solomon say? He says this. He says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Everyone's toil is for their mouths, and yet their appetite is never satisfied. Oh God, this morning, as we take these moments to consider your word, challenge us, change us, mold us, make us. God, Position us in such a way that it just seems natural to say, I'm all in with you. God, we, we commit this time as we consider your word. We, can, we, can, we, we submit it to you in Jesus' name. I want to talk to you about this issue of, of being all in with God. And and, and let, me, let me preface by saying this. I want to encourage you, more than encourage you, I want to challenge you this morning to allow God by His Holy Spirit to speak to you. And here's the question that you need to ask yourself this morning. God, what areas in my life am I at the center is something at the center, is something at the center, and not you. And God, in this moment, as, as, as I'm here in your house, as I'm here in your presence, God, I want you to reveal to me the areas in my life that I am not all in with you. What would be that thing that Jesus would mention as he looks at you with compassion and he says, there's one thing you lack. Here's the 
here's what we know about the story of the rich young ruler. Jesus has no problems with wealth. God the Father has no problems with wealth. How do we know that? We know that because throughout biblical history, what does God do? God prospers those who follow him. Over and over and over again. Many of the stories that you read woven throughout Scripture, they're stories of individuals that follow God and they have tremendous wealth. And so the idea of tremendous wealth cannot be a negative thing if God's going to prosper people like Abraham, if God's going to prosper people like Job, right? When Job goes through his time of trouble, after Job comes through that time of trouble, what does God do? God doesn't just restore to Job that which he has. God doubles what Job has. So if having wealth is a bad thing, God would not have doubled what Job had. So the issue with the rich young ruler isn't the fact that he has substance, in fact, oftentimes that story, when Jesus' statement is, is repeated in, in modern context, oftentimes it's misquoted. It's often misquoted like this. There's one thing you lack, go sell all of your possessions, give it to the poor, take up your cross and follow me. More often than not, what has happened is left out that expression, and you will have treasure in heaven. It's that it's that issue of, of focus. It's that issue of determination. It's that, it's that issue of, of lordship. You know, it's, it's easy for us to, it's easy for us today to embrace Jesus as Lord. Because in our world, the title of Lord is an honorary title. I want you to think about that for a moment. If, if I had an individual who stepped up on the stage this morning and I introduced to, introduced to him to you as, as Lord Anderson or Lord Bartholomew, you would assume, and rightly so, that someone at some point had bestowed on him this ceremonial or honorary title. And for far too many of us, when we make the statement that Jesus is Lord of all, we're really bestowing on him a ceremonial title because in our life, in our world, that's really far from the case. Because he's not Lord of our relationships. He's, he's not Lord of our, our ideas. He's not Lord of our career. He's, he's not Lord of our resource. There's one thing that you lack. And see, Solomon figured this out. He, he, he got it. Here's what it says starting in Ecclesiastes, verse 1. This is out of the New International Version. It says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, they return again. All things are worrisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, 
there is something new. It was already long ago. There is no remembrance of men of old. Even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. He says we chase after these things that really have no enduring substance to them. And then he starts to unpack it. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, devoted myself to study and explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun and all, all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Let me read that to you again. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And then he goes on and he says this, that, that we focus on these created things rather than the creator. It's what, it's what Paul refers to in Romans when he says this. They, they exchange the created things, or they exchange the creator for the created things, right? And, and we, we fall into this trap. It's, it's what Solomon spoke of in the Old Testament. It's what Jesus was referring to with the rich young ruler in the New Testament. It's what Paul spoke to the church at Rome and, and through the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit and his word to us today. Solomon says this, he says, I, I sought after knowledge, but knowledge proved hollow. That's what he says in, in, in Ecclesiastes 1.17. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. He says knowledge isn't the answer. What about pleasure, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. He goes on, he says, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. He said, okay, so knowledge isn't the answer. It's not found in some great deep philosophy. Pleasure proves to be pointless. The, the parties get old. And, and pleasure is, is enjoyable for a season. But in time, we end up chasing after pleasure simply to mask the pain. He says, how about this? How about wealth and accomplishment? That's, that's the key, isn't it? It's got to be it. Because it's not, it's not, it's not wisdom. It's, it's, not, it's not pleasure. How about, how about wealth? I undertook great projects, he says in Ecclesiastes 2.4. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I, I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of trees, with, with uh, fruit trees. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and, and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Meaningless, he says. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. 
And this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained. We live in an environment where the prevailing philosophy is he who dies with the most toys wins. Or those who have the highest social conscience, yet those are the people that will truly be satisfied. And as we go from generation to generation, as we, we go from one culture to another, here's what will happen. We will make these shifts on a, on a generational basis. We need to chase after wisdom. Oh, wisdom is foolishness. We need to chase after wealth. Wealth is foolishness. We need to chase after experience. Experience is foolishness. We, have, we need to chase after philosophy, ideology. Oh, that's foolish. And we jump from cycle to cycle to cycle to idea to idea to idea, and they ring hollow. Solomon told us this. It all is meaningless. And yet, and yet we hold on to it so tightly. Jesus be the center of my life, except for this relationship. Jesus be the center of my life, it, except for this, this activity that we're not going to talk about in church. Jesus be the center of my life, except for this grudge that I hold against the former business partner that did me wrong. Jesus be the center of my life, except for when it comes to my finances. Because I'm good with the idea of tipping, but the idea of tithing pushes me over the edge. Yes, I want you to be Lord as long as it's an honorary title. You know, a number of years ago, I had, a, I had an interesting experience that the story has, it has stuck with me. And I was, I was pastoring a church in, in southwest Florida, down in the Fort Myers area. And we were, we were a campus of a much larger church. And when I first got there, we were meeting in a high school, a sterile high school. And, and up the street uh, from us, on the same street as their sterile high school, was this church building that it was an independent church uh, that the pastor decided he was going to put it up for sale because he wanted to move to Orlando because Orlando was a better television market, okay? Which, by the way, for those of you that are watching via live stream, that's the reason why you want to be a part of a church that has some accountability to it and some health. Because the guy literally did this. The, the, the people sacrificed, helped build the church, uh, helped pay off the church and pay off the parsonage, and he sold it all and moved to Orlando. So, uh, so anyway, he was wanting to sell this to a developer. The developer found out about it, contacted our church and said, hey, 
this guy's going to sell this building. It's for sale. And so, so we negotiated. We bought the church, met with the people that were, that were in the church existing and said, look, we're going to take this over. We're going to, we're, it's not going to be torn down. We're going to keep it as a church. And, uh, and we, we moved into the building. Let me say this. Small church, we were running less than 200 people at the time, $4.3 million worth of debt. Crazy amount of debt, right? And so this, this land developer that had told us about this deal, the day before our, before our first official service, I'm out in the parking lot, I'm spraying weeds, okay? And I'm out in the parking lot spraying weeds for two reasons. Number one, it's just the right thing to do. Number two, when you're a church of 200 and you've just taken on $4.3 million in debt, how many of you know you're not hiring landscaping crew? right? So I was the landscaping crew. I was the secretary. I was the janitor. I was, that was it, right? So I'm out there spraying the weeds and this guy pulls in and uh, I didn't know who he was at the time. And, and he says, hey, are you the new, are you the new preacher here? And I said, I, I actually am, sir. And he goes, great to meet you. And he introduced himself. So, and I'll call him Bill Smith. That's not his name, but I, I, I uh, uh, but uh, just to protect his, his anonymity. I said, great, Bill, it's an honor to meet you. Uh, I'm looking forward to being your neighbor. He owned a 7,000 square foot house, 10 acres of land next door, incredible house. And he said, oh, I don't live next door. I said, you don't live next door? And he said, he says, no. He goes, I live out on the river. And I said, oh, I said, okay. I said, so what's the story? He goes, well, I'd actually love to get together and talk with you about that. He said, how about this? How about we have lunch together on Tuesday? I'll show you the house and then we can run down to the restaurant at the Embassy Suites and, and grab a bite to eat. And so he shows me this house and it's just this phenomenal house. 48 foot tall ceiling in the dining room. Uh, you could seat 140 people in the house for, for, for dinner. And, uh, and so uh, he shows me, he walks me through the house and shows me this thing, uh, tw- a total of 12 car garage. And, uh, and he, uh, so we sit down at lunch and he said, listen, he goes, um, you, you should buy this house. <laughs> yeah, right. Like personally or the church, because neither one of us, I think if everybody in the church got together, we could all collectively buy and live there. But it only had 7,000 square feet and it only had two bedrooms, right? Wholly impractical. So he said, no, no, no. He goes, he goes, he goes you, you should buy this. That way you have the land for long term. He said, here's the story. The house is worth two and a half million dollars. I'll sell it to you for that two and a half million, but I'll donate a million of the two and a half million so you only have to pay a million and a half dollars for this two and a half million dollar property. That's an incredible deal if you had the money. (laughs) And so I said to him, I said, Bill, that's a very generous offer, but I think what you don't understand is this. While we're connected to this larger church, each one of our campuses has to rise and fall on its own. And so I have 200 people, I've got... $4.3 million in debt. I am up to here. Then I I, I smiled at him and I said this. Don't ask me why. It just came to me. And I said, but here's the thing, Bill. In every life, in the life of every church, there's a miracle moment. And you have an opportunity to be a part of a miracle moment. So, Bill, I would just tell you to pray and do whatever God tells you to do. And then I paused and smiled at him and I said, was that too hard to sell? And he goes, no, not at all. He goes, I appreciate it. So, so we, we leave there. This is on a Tuesday. A week and a half later on a Thursday, he calls me and he says this. Hi, Ed. He goes, Sandra and I, his wife, and he, he goes, Sandra and I drove by your church on Sunday and we saw that your parking lot was full and you had people parking in the grass. 
And uh, I said, yeah, I said, it was just a great day. And he goes, you know what, you need our land. So if it's okay with you, we're just going to give it to you. Okay. Here was, here was the next thing he said, Ed, are you still there? <laughs> and my response was, uh, Bill, you're going to have to give me a minute because I pulled over on the side of the road because I'm hyperventilating. So I was driving in my car as I was talking to him. And he said, listen, he said, he said, understand this. This is not a big deal. He goes, this is the first of many miracles you'll experience. You just need to get used to it. And, and that has proven to be true. I, I, I've watched as God has done miracle after miracle after miracle. And, and the, you guys know the story here. God giving Calvary a nine plus million dollar gift. It, it's just, it's kind of what God does, right? So, so he says, listen, let's get together next week. I'll walk you through the house and I'll show you, you know, you got, you got a tour of the house. Now we need to talk about what you need to do to take care of the house. And I said, absolutely, would love to do it. And so he's explaining to me the sand filters on the, on the irrigation system and all that. And I said to him, I said, Bill, I'm still blown away that you would give a $2.5 million property to a church that you have no association with. He attended a, a church that was a totally different flavor of church. And he said, Ed, well, let me tell you a story that hopefully will help you to understand. I've told you all that to tell you this story. How's that for a setup? And he said, a number of years ago, when I was just starting to get traction in, in buying and selling property, he said, things, things started to roll. And he said, and I was buying, you know, hundreds of acres at a time. And just really blessed and amazed at God, what God was doing. He goes, I was doing so well that I bought a twin-engine prop plane to where I could fly to different locations to see my different properties. And then I, I received this phone call. It was from Phillips Petroleum, and they said this, Mr. Smith, the property that you just acquired, uh, we are reasonably certain that there are rich oil reserves on your property. And we'd love to talk with you about that. And he said, Ed, I cannot tell you how that made me feel. He goes, because owning land, that's flying around in a twin-engine prop. He goes, oil that prop plane's going away, and I'm flying in a jet. He goes, I am so excited. I'm like, oh, this is, come on, God. This is what I've been waiting for. And he said, and, and in that moment, God spoke to me and said, Bill, with this venture, I'm going to ask you to be generous. And he goes, and I was totally comfortable with that. He said, I grew up in the church. I grew up with the principle of tithing. I grew up with the principle of giving. That was not a big deal for me. So I was like, that's fine. I said, but day after day, God keeps speaking to me. He keeps saying, Bill, on this venture, I'm going to ask you to be generous. He said, so finally, he goes, I, 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 in prayer with God, I said, okay, God, here's the thing. I will double my tithe. Because that's pretty generous, right? 20%? I mean, of oil money? And he said, God just kept speaking to him. I'm going to ask you to be generous. He goes, so I drove out, and he goes, I'm sitting on the edge of this this, this property. He said, and understand this. He said, Ed, I drove out there in a brand new luxury vehicle. I, I, I have more money than I can spend. And I'm sitting out and I'm looking at this land. And I say, okay, God, what is it that you want? And he said, God said this to me, I want it all. And he said, if I could describe to you the anger that I felt in that moment. <laughs> what? Goodbye, Cessna Citation. 
He goes, I'm, I'm, I'm livid with God. How dare you? He goes, and I go, <laughs> he goes, it's unexplainable. He goes, but I go from anger to laughter. And I go, God, you've given me everything that I have. How can I refuse? It all belongs to you. And he goes, God, it all, whatever you want to do with the resources that come from this, just, God, help me to be sensitive. Help me to hear what you're saying. However you want these resources to flow, I'm all in. The next day, he received word from Phillips Petroleum. It was a dry well. God wasn't asking him to surrender anything. God wasn't asking him to sacrifice anything. He was just asking him to have the disposition of, it all belongs to you. And he said, I learned a valuable lesson that day that God will take care of me and there's no way that I can outposition or outgive God. And he said, so when we met, he goes, the first time I saw you, I knew that this land that God had me build this house 10 years ago to save this land for the church. And he said, quite honestly, he said, when you, when you made the statement on Tuesday about praying and being, being obedient to what God says, he goes, I knew that day that I, that, that I was supposed to give you the land, but I also knew that I better go and talk to my wife before I do it. Because <laughs> I've, I've gone down that road before and it didn't go well for me. What dry well are you holding on to? Let me ask you that question again. What dry well are you holding on to? What relationship are you keeping from God? What resource are you keeping from God? What habit are you keeping from God? What idea are you keeping from God? What memory are you keeping from God? What hurt are you keeping from God? What dry well are you holding on to? The end of Ecclesiastes. Solomon says this. He says, I've, I've tried wealth. I've, I've tried wisdom. I've tried pleasure. I've tried accomplishment. I've tried philosophy and it all rings hollow he says this in, in, in Ecclesiastes 11 verse 1 he says cast your bread upon the waters for after many days you will find it again Give portions to seven yes to eight for you, you don't know what disaster may come upon the land if, if clouds are full of water they they pour rain on the earth, whether a tree falls to the south or the north, and the place where it falls, there will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. Let me say that again. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. He says, you're, you're trying to figure it all out. You're, you're trying to do it on your own terms. But here's what you have to do. You have to you have to cast your bread upon the water. No, 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 I've, I've got to hold on to my grain. 
I've got to hold on to it because if I don't, I, I, I may starve. I made this statement when, when I, four and a half years ago, when I came to, uh, when I came to Calvary to pastor the church, I, I, I made this statement, and it has proven to be true, that it is easier to pastor a church that doesn't have money than it is to pastor a church with money. You know why? Because when you don't have money, you don't have to think about it. You just, you just know you have to go on faith, right? Do you remember that? Remember when you first got married and you had nothing? Jody and I, are on the 27th of July, we will celebrate 33 years of being married, okay? When we first got married, we lived in a garden apartment. How many of you know what a garden apartment means? Okay, it means you're living in the basement, right? <laughs> so, and, uh, so we were living in the basement. Our furniture, I had bought all of our furniture for $75 from a resale shop. We had this seven-foot leopard print couch, <laughs> Right? Our bed, our first bed, we were married the 27th of July, until the middle of October, we slept on a hideaway bed, one of those, one of those beds that kind of fold up and you roll into the corner, that it wasn't quite a full-size bed. It was between a twin size and a full size, right? Let me just say this. For the first few months of being married, that's fine, because you, it's, you know, it's nice to snuggle, but after a few months, you're like, I need some space, okay? And here's what we did, Okay? Our first piece of furniture that we bought was a waterbed. Anybody else have a waterbed? Right? Now, if you had money, you bought the, 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 the waterbed that had the baffles in it, right? To, to where it, it kind of had, it had, was motion restricted. We didn't have money. Like, we, we, bought, we bought the least expensive bed we could buy, and we bought the, the padded side rails to where we get the price point up to $150 to where we could buy it 90 days, same as cash. Okay? And ours was the full motion. It was like sleeping on a beached whale. And our, our heater was the cheapest heater you could buy. So one night you would get into bed and it was like you were in the Arctic Circle and the next night you wouldn't get in bed and it was like you were sleeping on a hot water bottle. I mean, it was just be crazy. And you never knew, you know? So it was, it was an adventure. But we didn't have to think about it, right? We were married a few months when a friend of ours called us and said, hey, would you be willing to move two and a half hours away and help me in this church that we're trying to get rolling? You be all in, man. We'll do it. We'll throw our stuff into a U-Haul truck and we'll, we'll, we'll move down. Now, the semi-trailer it would take to move all the stuff that we never use, right? It's a different, it's a totally different world. It's a, it's a totally different deal. What? If I were to go, what would I do with all of my stuff? It just gets, gets complicated. Pastor, how can we even think of having Calvary have less than $3 million in the bank? Really? No, by the way, just so you know, we will, we will not put this church in financial jeopardy. We won't do it. And that isn't what this message is about, but it is about this. It's about living our lives in such a way that we say, okay, God, everything belongs to you. Whatever you want to do with it, 
God, I came into this world with nothing. I'm going out with nothing. And so the resource that you give me in the, during the time that I'm here, it all belongs to you. And God, I'm going to put it out there. That's what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 11.1. He says this, don't hold on to your grain out of fear. Put it out there. Okay? And when you put it out there, here's what will happen. It will come back to you. Okay? Not only will it come back to you, cast your bread upon the many waters. After many days, you will find it again. And again. And again. And again. See, to go all in with God, here's what we have to do. We have to trust God in the risk. And we can trust God in the risk because we recognize God's sovereignty. The word Lord is not a Hebrew word. When you read in your Bible, when you read in the Old Testament and you see this word Lord, it is, it is typically one of two words, Yahweh or Adon or Adonai. It's not Lord. And here's what Adon means. Yahweh is God. Adon means owner. The word in the New Testament that is most often translated Lord is the word kurios. Here's what the literal translation of kurios means, boss man. That's what it means. In fact, that word kurios, it's not just used for God. It's not just used for Jesus in the New Testament. The parables, when Jesus talks about the t parables, the parable of the, of the master who, who has workers to go out into the field. The word there is kurios. When, when they go before Pontius Pilate to try to get Pontius Pilate to order the execution of Jesus. You know what they call Pontius Pilate? Kurios. Sir, boss man. And so this issue of Lord or Lordship, is it an honorary title in the involvement that we have with Jesus in every area of our life? See, we, we have to recognize God's sovereignty. That's what, that's what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in the mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. So sow your seed. Sow your seed in the morning. Cast it out there. Trust God in the risk, knowing that he is sovereign. Put action to your faith. Ecclesiastes 1 starts, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Here's how the book of Ecclesiastes ends. Fear God 
and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing. Whether it is good or evil. All this other stuff, Solomon says, the wisest man ever to live says this, all this other stuff, garbage. All this other stuff doesn't matter. All this other stuff, vanity. All this other stuff, meaningless. Wealth, meaningless. Philosophy, meaningless. Pleasure, meaningless. Accomplishments, meaningless. Here's what matters. God in the center of your life. Living a life that's pleasing and honoring to him. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the will of God. And God will judge everything, even everything you think he doesn't see. So I ask the question again. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. And I ask the question again. Mike, let me hand this to you. Not in judgment, but in the purpose for which God brought us here today to, to, to continue this, this wonderful work in our life, to grow us, to develop us, to mold us, to make us. What are the areas? In your life where the statement Jesus is Lord is an honorary title. Is he is he your boss at work? Oh, I can't be overt in my faith. I might lose my job. Is he Lord in, in that relationship? I know I'm, I know I'm connected to somebody who's at a very different place spiritually than me. And I know what the Bible says about that, this idea of being unequally yoked, but, but pastor, I just wanna be happy. In your, in your resource. Oh, pastor, I'm a tither. You don't have to talk to me. Yeah, tithing is the training wheels. And there are times that God says, I want to flow resource like you never imagined through you. I want you to be a part of giving multi-million dollar properties to churches. How, how fun would that be? That does not happen until we, until we get him into the center. The activities of your life, your, your internet browsing, 
Pastor, there was a part of this sermon, you were funny, but now this is getting very personal and I'm getting un- uncomfortable. Man, I can appreciate that and, and, and understand this. It's, it's, not, it's not my intent and it's not God's intent for you to feel judgment. But I believe that God brought us here together this morning to sand some of those rough edges off. And uh, and to see him move a, a little bit more to the center of our life. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by the ministry of Calvary Orlando. We invite you to join us in person at Calvary Orlando for one of our Sunday morning worship experiences each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. To find out more about Calvary, please visit our website at calvaryorlando.org. Here you can find our latest events and ministry opportunities. Thanks for listening and God bless.